Hey, this is Billy McPeak, pastor of Grace Point Church. And this is our podcast. I wanted to thank you for joining us today. I hope this inspires you and motivates you. I hope it builds your faith. I pray it gives you a perspective to see God moving in your life. Enjoy the message. Well, praise God. Good morning, everybody. It is great to be, you can be seated. God bless you. Uh, what a joy it is to be in the house of the Lord today and to be among the people of God. There's no place in the world that I would rather be than with God's people. I, I believe that when you're with the people of God, you're in the right place at the right time with the right people doing the right thing. And uh, so we consider it an incredible honor to get to come and to be with you all today and to be here uh, with your wonderful pastors. How many think you got the absolute best pastors in the entire world right here? Amen. God bless you, Billy and Susan. And uh, they're new friends for us, and we're excited about getting acquainted and having the opportunity to, uh, to know them better and the leadership of this church. For just over 20 years, uh, Kath and I have been working with Christian leaders around the nation. Uh, it, it was really a, a call of God, a, a calling from the Lord. Uh, ministry was familiar for both of us. Uh, my dad pastored for 50 years, my granddad 60 years before him, and so um, ministry has been in our family since longer than I've been on the planet, and uh, we just had this incredible burden, and uh, for a number of years I spent uh, both in pastoral ministry and uh, in, in various leadership positions. You know, when you're raised as a PK, you kind of learn to do everything, you know what I'm saying? You began... Uh, with mowing the yard and pulling the weeds, and then you uh, are promoted to cleaning the bathrooms and setting chairs up. And, and uh, to this day, uh, I'm one of my favorite things to do, set chairs up and get them just right, because Dad always wanted them just right, you know. And so, uh, so over the years, then went into Christian education and spent a number of years working in Christian colleges and universities and training and teaching and and uh, then in administration. And, uh, but all through those years, my heart was always for the local church. And so uh, 20 years ago, uh, we began Destiny Ministries. And uh, really what we do on a day-to-day basis, for the most part, is pastor-pastors. That's essentially what we do. How many believe everybody needs a pastor? Amen. It doesn't matter what your role is. It doesn't matter how long you've been in ministry. We all need people that can love us and pray for us and coach us and work with us, and so over the years we've worked with some of the great churches in America and been blessed to do that, and uh, so really honored and privileged to be here, and how many believe that God could do something in the next few minutes that could change your life for a lifetime? Amen. Amen. Even with a, a preacher that's, uh, that's coughing and spitting and sputtering a bit today, uh, I pray that you'll be uh, patient with me. I, I love the word of the Lord, and I, I have learned a long time ago that the power is in the seed, not the farmer. Come on. Amen. Amen. And so the word of God is powerful. Whether we're always feeling powerful or not, God's word is powerful. And uh, I, I believe it was C.S. Lewis that said, I, I uh, believe in Christianity and the power of God's word in the same way that I believe uh, when the sun rises, and I believe in the sun when it rises. He said it's not that I see the sun, but it's through the sun I see everything else. And so when we're reading the Word of God and when we're in the Word of God, it's not that we see the Word of God, it's through God's Word we see everything else. That everything should be viewed and experienced through the lens of the power of God's Word. Amen. 
And so, uh, so I, I appreciate your attention today, your, uh, your willingness to listen to someone other than your pastor. I know that we get our ears tuned to our pastor. It's God's will and plan that it be that way. But I just pray that as we share the word today, that there'll be something that the Lord will quicken to your heart that will do what, it li- what God likes to do, and that's to change our lives. Amen. So I'd like you to open your Bible to the book of Romans with me, and I want to have you turn to chapter number 16. And I want to encourage you today uh, to, with me to take the Soon Tree Bow Challenge. Some of you are thinking, what in the world is that? The Soon Tree Bow? Everybody say it with me. Soon Tree Bow. The Soon Tree Bow Challenge. It sounds like a late night infomercial for martial arts, something or other, I suppose. And maybe in a sense, it, it's a little that way. Uh, a lot of us, I, I don't know whether you've, like I have, lived long enough to know that even though you have been saved and you have been freed from the yoke of bondage that the enemy had on your life, how many know that if you're not careful, life will yoke you back up? That the enemy wants to put you back into bondage. Even though you've, you've had that yoke broken and even though you have been liberated, for example, like the children of Israel were when they came out of Egyptian bondage, it only takes a little bit of life to put some things back on your neck. Uh, events that happen, mistakes that you make, uh, mistakes that other people have made that have adversely affect you, uh, things that happen, bad decisions, for example, or perhaps a financial downturn in the economy, or, or maybe it was something that you didn't expect that would happen, but it left a baggage with you, and it left a chain or a shackle of memory that tries to prevent you from experiencing all that God has and all that God wants for your life. And so we're going to talk about how to soon trebo those things in your life that the enemy would try to bring in that would put you back into bondage if you're not careful as a believer. Amen? So let's begin reading uh, at verse number, uh, well, let's see. Uh, Let's go to verse number 17. I'm going to ask you to stand. I know you've been up and down a lot today, but there's enough old school Pentecost in me that I like to stand when we read God's word. There is a subliminal message when we stand. Ancient Israel almost always stood when the scribes would read. As during the feast times and festivals when Israel would gather, uh, sometimes they would stand for hours while the, the scribes read the scripture to the people because they believed that something was powerful was about to be said. And I still happen to believe that today. Amen. So we're going to look at verse number 17. Uh, Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause division and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. Get your book out and make a list. For those who are such do not serve the Lord Jesus Christ but their own belly and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. For your obedience has become known to all. Therefore, I'm glad on your behalf. But I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. Wow, what deep theological wisdom from the Apostle Paul. This man who was multilingual, who probably could quote the scripture, the Old Testament scriptures that is, backwards. His Pharisaic training uh, put him at the very height of those in his, among his peers in terms of his biblical knowledge. And I find it interesting that this man 
said, and I'll put it in Arkansas vernacular, get really good at what is good and stay away from what ain't good. <laughs> That's pretty deep, isn't it? He said, I, I've heard of your obedience and I, everyone is respecting your heart to serve the Lord. And he said, what I'm encouraging you to do is get good at what's good and stay away from what's evil. Good sound wisdom there. But it's verse 20 that I want to draw your attention to and then we're going to pray. And it's an interesting idea because there's a bit of irony in the passage. And the God of peace will soon crush or will crush Satan under your feet shortly. That's the New King James Version. Other versions, it says, And the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. Will crush is a phrase in the English, but it's from one word in the Greek. That word is soon trebo. Soon trebo. And the God of peace, the ironic idea that a, a peaceful God will bring violence to the enemy that is working in your life. Amen. Amen. We'll soon crush Satan under your feet. And the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the anointing of the Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord, for the power that's in your word and this beautiful congregation today, God. Lord, I pray that you will open our hearts, Lord, our, our minds are opening, Father. We're opening our filters. And we say with all of our heart today that we will be taught the word of God and we will receive it with gladness and that it will do its job in our life. Lord, like the leaven of the parable that Jesus told about the woman who put leaven into 60 pounds of flour, left it overnight, and then when she came back, the entire measure of flour had been transformed by the power of of the leaven she'd inserted. So, Lord, we ask you to insert the word in our lives and then let it change us radically for your purpose. In Jesus' great name, amen. High-five somebody and tell them, get ready for the word of the Lord today. And the God of peace. When you're, uh, when you're reading the book of Romans, the book of Romans has largely become, and certainly by the end of the first century, it had become the primer, the basic foundational handbook for how to be a Christian. Paul, when he's writing to the, to the Roman church, he's not visited this church in his past, though he knows a lot of the people that are part of the church. Like all of Paul's letters, we call them letters because they were letters. They were that. They were designed to be read from beginning to end. They were designed in one setting to be read. And typically when there was a courier that delivered a letter in the ancient world, the classical practice was for that person who carried the letter to then read it to the audience or the one that it's going to be aimed at and explain what the author meant when the letter was written. We find in the 16th chapter of the book of Romans that a lady who was a deacon in Sincrea named Phoebe was the one who carried the letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome. Following tradition, she would have read the letter herself and then explained what the Apostle Paul meant when he wrote those things. Some of the iconic things that we as believers talk about today originated in terms of Paul's ideas in the book of Romans. And the just shall live by faith. 
a, a phrase that has transformed the church. It was transformative then. It was the headwaters of the Great Reformation. The just shall live by faith. Another phrase, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Bombs of theological revelation and understanding that were, were delivered in this letter to the Romans. But as we find this passage that I've opened to you today, this passage is kind of a postscript. As a matter of fact, Paul really finishes his theological discussion and his teaching of the word, if you will, along about chapter number 15. And then gets toward chapter 16, and he's thinking about all the people that are going to be listening to his message that day, delivered by this deaconess named Phoebe. And uh, he's thinking about the ones that he loves so much. And how many have ever sat down to write a letter, and in the process of writing the letter, you were kind of overwhelmed? Anybody ever write a love letter back in the day? Some of you guys or gals ever write a love letter to your significant other, and you just get at some point overtaken by emotion? And, uh, and some of you, well, we need to have a prayer line. Some of you don't, uh, don't remember those days. But, or some of you ladies remember getting a love letter from that fellow that didn't, was not long on words and didn't have a lot to say. And, and uh, you know, man, it's just like, uh, he, when he opened his heart to you, it like changed everything. And that's kind of like the Apostle Paul. He was a man to some degree of, uh, of short and brief ideas. And though we read the epistles that he writes to us in an ancient sense, these were a very limited amount of writing that he gives us. He's not a man of many words. He is a man of action. He's a man, man of deeds. He's a man who takes the bull by the horns. And he's a man who, when he hears from God, acts. And, and he is a, a caloric, probably, style personality. He's a type A personality. And, but as he's writing to the Roman church, he begins to think about all the people that have been part of his life that are there. And he, he says, now listen, guys and gals, when Phoebe gets there, y'all treat her right. Be good to her, be nice to her, receive her, whatever business that she needs you to help her with, uh, to conduct, make sure that you make yourself available to her. And, and then he says, oh, and by the way, greet uh, Priscilla and Aquila. And he said, man, they risked their neck for me. I'll, I'll remember when I was in need and <clears throat> I was in a situation and I needed help and they were there for me. And he goes down through the list. <clears throat> He goes down through the list and gives accommodations and greetings to so many are there. But he gets to the end of that time of greeting and he has a postscript. It's like, oh, wow. Oh, I meant to say this. And so he adds this to his letter. And that's the passage that I've, I've read in your hearing today. And it was interesting to me that he thought toward the end and he said, oh, and by the way, I know everywhere I've ever been, everywhere I've ever tried to minister before, there's always those people that come in and attack the things that I've said. They try to cause division and they try to cause schisms and division in the church. And he said, I can't leave you without admonishing you to identify the work of the enemy in your life. To identify those who are attacking what I've taught you, mark them and have nothing to do with them. He said, wait a minute, did I mention that? Did I mention that you're going to be tested and tried? Did I mention to you in the process of this letter of all these wonderful things that I've written that there'll come a moment that somebody will come to you and try to lie about who Jesus was or try to lie about what the Word of God says or try to teach you a doctrine that's different? Mark those and stay away from them. How many of you know sometimes the enemy will use 
people who come dressed as an angel of light to sow bad ideas in your life. It's not just the devil in some back alley circumstance that will bring temptation in your life. Sometimes it's from places that you wouldn't have expected and people that you thought were for you but then suddenly surprise you when they're not for you. And, and he says, be careful of those that cause division. It's a postscript to the letter. But then he gets to this passage and he says, and the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. Soon crush, soon trebo. Uh, I, I don't know a lot about martial arts, but I've always been may, amazed at the various disciplines of martial arts and how sometimes that can, uh, I, I mean, I guess one of the principles of most martial arts, as I understand it, is you use the force and the power of your enemy against them. So like, the, like the, the, the perfect judo move is when you get your enemy moving in a direction and then you go with them in that direction, but instead of hitting you, you, you break that, that thing that they brought into your life and use their own device against them. And I think what Paul is saying to us here is that uh, when the enemy attacks, we need to use the power of the enemy against him Amen. and begin to break the work of the enemy in our life. Now, what, what, uh, what can do that? What, is it, what do we have in our arsenal that will allow us to use the power and the force of opposition and the power and force of the demonic attack that would come against us against the devil himself and destroy and break his power and destroy his own kingdom? Well, this is really what we saw Jesus doing. This is how Jesus worked. How many would like a Christianity that will work? I'm talking about beyond the shout and the huck and the buck and all the stuff that we do at church. I've been raised in Pentecostal circles all my life. But beyond all the emotionalism, how many want a Christianity that will work for you right in the middle of an attack of the enemy in your life? When nobody's around you to give you a word and nobody's there to give you a prophetic utterance and nobody's there to give a tongue and interpret that, it is you and God and the devil and the enemy is attacking. How many want a Christianity that will work in that moment? Well, well, ladies and gentlemen, there are things that work, and I'm thankful for that. And every time I think about a Christianity at work, I think about the little boy that wanted the red bike. I don't know whether you've ever heard the story or not, but there was this little fellow that wanted a red bike. Everybody, all of his friends at school were getting bikes, and, man, they, all, they, they, they were really cool bikes. He wanted one, too. But he didn't have the money to get it, and he really didn't think his parents had the money to give, get it for him. So he thought, I need a miracle. If I'm going to get a red bike, I need a miracle. So his, his parents were religious Christians. They weren't really relational Christians in terms of being in relationship with the Lord. And he thought, well, the only thing I know to do is try to learn the, to pray the right kind of prayer that would cause God to give me that red bike. And mom and dad, I don't have any confidence that they can do it, so I don't, the only thing I know to do is watch Christian television. So he sat down and he watched Christian TV to see if he could learn how to pray the right kind of prayer that would cause God to give him that red bike. First day he watched the High Church channel. These folks had all their theology nailed down just right and all the these and thous and the formalities of Christianity and all the cutuments of the Christian faith. He took careful notes through the day. When it came time for bed, he got down by the side of his bed and he thought, I got this figured out, pulled his notes out and he prayed a prayer, something like this. 
Great God, omnipotent one, thou who dost hold all things together by the power of your superintending authority. Hear this, the urgent plea of thy humble servant as I beseech thee on behalf of my desperate need for a a bright red bike. (laughs) (coughs) Finished his prayer, got up in bed and slept all night. Got up in the morning, ran to the living room to see if that red bike was there. No red bike. He thought, well, I've watched the wrong channel. (laughs) So... uh, Next day, he turned over and on that day, watched the Faith Channel. Good word, man. Copious notes, careful. Teacher after teacher. Got it all down, nailed down just right and got down by the side of his bed to pray that night and prayed a prayer like this. He said, Lord, I thank you that I already have a red bike. I name it and claim it in Jesus' name. No devil in hell can keep me from getting a full manifestation in the natural of what's already mine in the spiritual. Amen. Went to bed that night and slept all night. Got up the next morning, no red bike. He thought, well, there's only one other channel to watch. So he watched it. It was a bit more complicated, a little more technical. He made it through about half the day. <coughs> and uh, his parents had that same very religious background, flowing robes and gold and silver and saints and whatnot. And so... His parents had that religious background as well. When it came bedtime, they had a statue of Mother Mary over in the corner of the living room. So he went over and got Mary around the neck and drug her back to his bedroom. His his mother thought, what in the world is that boy doing? She eased up the hall and heard him pray this prayer. He said, Lord, if you ever want to see your mother again, (coughs) you better give me a red bike. Some of us not worried about what the label is. We just want something that works. Amen. Amen. <laughs> well, you know, embedded in God's word is some real guidelines about what really works. What actually will make a difference in your situation. And so I can't, I'm going to get to those in a minute and give you a couple of three of them. But I can't really get there before I explain how they work. To really understand how they work, you have to understand if, when I'm talking about crushing Satan underneath your feet. And the things that I'm going to share with you, they work, but why do they work? Now, I'm kind of a why leader. You know, I mean, it's not so much what works. I want to know why it works. And I'll get how it works later, but I want to know why it works. And I want to propose to you that the three things I'm going to mention to you today, they work because they are anointed to work. The anointing. Somebody say the anointing. That's what helped them to work. The reason these things that I'm going to point out to you work is because they are anointed to work. They have the anointing. What is the anointing? Well, if you have a, uh, not while while I'm preaching to you today or teaching, but you could do a Google search because Google's kind of like God, right? Not really, I'm kidding. But he seems to know everything, right? Did you know 85% of young people under the age of 18 find out everything in life, everything in life they discover through a Google search? That's what the latest survey showed, just incidentally. Shouldn't be that way, but that's the culture that we're part of. So if you did a Google search and just said the anointing, there'd be all kinds of verses that would pop up from the scripture. So there's a couple of three places I just want to draw your attention to today, though, that I think give us a real understanding of of why the anointing works. 
<coughs> the first one is Isaiah chapter number 10, perhaps the most familiar and most often quoted verse about the anointing. And here's what Isaiah is saying to the nation of Israel. He said, you once were, this is my paraphrase now, you once were in Egyptian bondage and God with a mighty hand broke the yoke and the shackle off of your life of Pharaoh and set you free. If you have an opportunity, you ought to go back and just read what happened in Exodus and how God sent plague after plague to the most powerful nation on the planet. And that with a stubborn heart and a rebellious attitude and a defiant spirit, Pharaoh pointed his face, his finger, so to speak, in the face of God and said, who is this God that I should? Well, he found out who that God was. And you know how he did it? By the power of the anointing. As God anointed those plagues to bring deliverance to the nation of Israel. And ultimately they were set free and went out into the Sinai Peninsula. And they had a, this encounter with God over about uh, nine, uh, maybe 11 months or so. I think that they were at the base of Mount Sinai circling that mountain while God gave them revelations uh, Moses' revelation on top of Mount Sinai through the Ten Commandments and what we would consider the Pentateuch or the first five books of Moses. He gave them that revelation of the law and the priesthood and all the elements of what's called the Mosaic Covenant. Well, when Isaiah's writing to Israel, that's long been passed and they have been freed, but there has been another enemy that has now come, and this one he characterizes as the Assyrian. It was going to come vis-a-vis -vis through the Assyrian army that were going to come back and infiltrate the land of Israel, and they were going to try to make slaves of them again. And Isaiah is warning them that this is going to happen. Anybody in this room, like I said at the outset of my message, that, that you found even though you got saved years ago, maybe you've been saved 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, or maybe five minutes, it doesn't matter. How many know that life will try to put you back into bondage? That there will be the enemy of your soul that will come through all kinds of circumstances to try to return you to the bondage like it was in Egypt when you were lost. And Isaiah says the Assyrian will come and try to repair and put that yoke back on your neck. But the day will come, he says, when the yoke will be destroyed by the power of the anointing. By the power of the anointing. So now we understand that the anointing is, is effective because it's powerful. It is an expression of the character and the nature of God. It is an expression of the person who God is when it comes into your life. And I just have to tell you, saints, there's not a shackle the enemy can put in your life and bring into your life that, the, that God's power and his anointing can't break and destroy. So the anointing is is effective because it's powerful. It's greater than. I love that greater than symbol in math. You could put that against the anointing and the, with the anointing against anything in your life. It's greater than addiction. It's greater than alcohol. It's greater than drugs. It's greater than pornography. It's greater than anything that the enemy would bring in your life to try to bring bondage back into your life. You can have more theological degrees than the thermometer. You can have more degrees than the thermometer, and it, it, there's not a lot of power in that. Those are tools that you can use, and they're good for you. It's good for you to know how to rightfully divide the Word of God. But the reason it works is because of the Word of God in your life. It's the power. It's anointed. Hallelujah. How many are glad and thankful for the power of the anointing today? Amen. 
My granddad never finished elementary school, but he was a powerful man of God. You know why? Because he was anointed. Amen. It wasn't about what he knew. It was about who he knew. Y'all forgive me. I'm not mad at anybody. (laughs) The holy anointing is still what it takes. It's still the X factor. Amongst all of our good systems and our, our better ideas and the protocols that we have today and all the styles of ministry that we do today, and I'm for them. If they're edifying Jesus, I'm okay with it. But the thing that makes them work is still the anointing. The same thing that changed my granddad's life back in that brush arbor at Snake Island, Arkansas. It was the same anointing. It's a devil crushing, kingdom of darkness breaking, darkness illuminating, power, and it will never lose its power. Amen. It will never lose its power. You know why the blood of Jesus is powerful? Is because it's anointed. Amen. It's anointed. And the beauty of that, it doesn't matter what your theological label is. It doesn't matter whether you consider yourself Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, Pentecostal, whatever. If anything works in your life, it works because it's anointed to work. <laughs> it's because you've stumbled on to whatever, to whatever vein you come from. You've stumbled on to enough truth that you found some anointing up in there and it broke the yoke of the enemy in your life. I need a better amen than that. How many are glad you don't have to have it all figured out? You don't have to be right in every area of your life for to, to, to experience the anointing. I, I fellowship with people all the time that I might not fully agree with theologically, but I know the anointing when I feel it. <laughs> I know when I get in that atmosphere where the power of God is manifest. I quit worrying about labels a long time ago. But I can't compromise on the anointing. I've experienced it in, honestly. I've experienced it in Gregorian chants. I've experienced it in, in powerful theological presentations of the gospel. I've experienced it in, out, in outpourings of the Holy Ghost. I've experienced, but the thing that is common among all those things is the power of the anointing of God. Isaiah said that when the enemy comes and tries to bring you back into bondage, the anointing will rise up against him and it will destroy the yoke. That idea of destroy is not just lift the yoke of bondage off your neck in the sense of you will be freed, but it will pulverize the yoke never to be used on you again. Some of us need to say today in this meeting today, enough is enough. Devil, I've been fooling with with bad ideas and low self-esteem. I've been fooling with that long enough. I've been fooling with struggling with finance and and the struggle about money. You know, the, the money will try to make convince you it's God. It's pretty much one of the only things in life that will masquerade itself as God. It'll talk to you. Come on, somebody. You know what I'm talking about. You start to write that tithe check, and suddenly there goes a ticker tape of of stuff in your mind. Well, why why are you going to do that? You know you need that money. You could do this. You could do money tells us. It'll get stuff for us. It'll give us power. It'll give us prestige. Are you all in the room with me? You know what I'm talking about? And, And that's why when we give, we humble money. When you give, you humble money. 
you say to that money, you're not God in my life. There is one God. And I, I will worship him and him alone. And so that's what part of the, the discipline of tithing is just keeps your money humble. So it don't try to be God in your life. Amen. Hey, I'm not even sure why I got off on that. Somebody probably needed it. Praise God. Amen. I'm talking about the anointing, ladies and gentlemen. That's what I'm talking about. And I'm just trying to explain to you today why it works. It's because it's an expression of the presence and the nature of God. It's anointing. In ancient times, they would anoint the place. The tabernacle, the temple, they were anointed. All the vessels and the fixtures that were there had to be anointed. The altars, the altar of the incense that, that represented worship that went up before God during those moments that represented the prayer and the praise of the people had to be anointed. Aaron and all of his sons had to be anointed. I, I'm concerned in these days of of advance and progress that we have forgotten the fundamental things sometimes that are most important. How, how central is the anointing to Christianity? And some of you think, well, this is just a Pentecostal message. You're in a spirit-filled church. And yeah, it doesn't matter where I preach it. I can tell you today that the concept of the anointing is central to Christianity to this degree. The word Christ means the anointed one. It's the, Greek, it's the Greek derivative of the Hebrew Mashiach. Jesus' name in the Hebrew was Yeshua HaMashiach. That just means Jesus, the anointed one. And it's translated in the Greek, Jesus Christos. Imagine that. It's the anointing is so central to Christianity that Jesus took it as his last name. How important would it be for him to allow himself to literally be identified in that way? Oh, listen, saints, we can never divorce ourselves from the power of the anointing of the Holy Spirit. We have to always welcome the anointing. We have to always embrace the anointing. <coughs> we have to always... Be reaching for the anointing of God. Can I get a good amen for that? <coughs> the second place that I want to mention to you today is in Luke chapter 4. When Jesus is coming out of the wilderness after having been tempted by the devil. Now this is the sequence, the chronological sequence, the way it unfolds. Jesus gets into the water and is baptized by John. The heavens open and a voice echoes from heaven as a dove descends on Jesus and said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He comes out of the water. The scripture says he is pushed by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tested or tempted of the devil. The idea in the Greek, the, the, the Greek version of that is, is to be uh, tested in, in the same way you would temper iron. I mean, you, when you're tempering steel, you're looking for weakness. That's the basic idea, is that he was driven by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tested, tempered. 
You see, it was important that Jesus overcome the enemy the same way we overcome the enemy. And you know what? The devil is such a, he's such a backstabber. And, a, and a, honestly, the devil is not a good person. Am I right? He's not. He, there's nothing good about the devil. He's a sucker puncher. He waited till Jesus had been 40 days without food and water. And when he was hungry, the Bible says... The enemy came and said, oh, you are all that? You don't have to be hungry. You don't have, why would you have to be hungry? You don't have to do that. that. This rock here, just make that rock into a big old loaf of your favorite honey, ground, flour, all that stuff with jam. and You can do that. He tempted him to use the power of the anointing. For his own purpose. And I love what Jesus responded. He said, he didn't fuss with the devil and say, I double bind you, strong man. I mean, he didn't call him a bunch of names. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but I'm just saying that's not the vibe we get in the scripture. He didn't beat the drums and, and you know, do the praise javelins and the flags. He didn't do all that. No, what he just did is he looked back into the eyes of Satan and he said, it is written Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And then you know the three temptations as he come through. So as Jesus came out of that with great victory, now instead of being driven by the Holy Spirit, he is led by the Holy Spirit, the Bible says, out of the wilderness. And he finds his way on the Sabbath day into his hometown synagogue in Nazareth, where he is then it has fallen upon him to read from the scroll. Now, ancient Israel followed a reading plan. So in every synagogue throughout all of Israel, they were reading the same passage. They hand him the prophet of the scroll, Isaiah. And Jesus opens it up. But it gives us some insight and some understanding of how Jesus did what Jesus did. Here's what he said. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he hath anointed me. In other words, I'm about to go throughout all the villages of Galilee and all the land of Palestine. I'm going to preach the word, cast out devils, heal the sick, raise the dead. And I'm going to just start it off right here in my hometown church telling y'all how I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it by the power of the anointing because the Spirit of God is upon me for he hath anointed me to preach the good news to the poor, to set at liberty those that are brown, to heal the brokenhearted, and to, to cast out every oppression of the enemy I'm pretty, I'm pretty much sure that covers everything ladies and gentlemen you could be dealing with today about everything is included if you have a broken heart he's anointed to bring healing to your broken heart if you are oppressed by the devil he is anointed by the power of the Holy Spirit to cast out that enemy and that working of the enemy in your life you name it there's an anointing for it and Jesus said I'm anointed to do it uh, the, last, the, the last passage that I would draw to your attention today is the passage in Acts chapter 10 where Peter has now gone to the house of Cornelius. Foreign land. He's a Jew. He could not go into the house of a Gentile. It would have made him ritually unclean. He would not have been kosher anymore. Big deal. Big deal. Matter of fact, it's such a big deal that Peter won't go by himself because he has come from Jerusalem and has a delegation of other Jews with him, he said, if the Lord's sending me, all y'all going. 
Ain't nobody getting out of this. No, we're going to have a good time together. And all y'all, if I'm going to go get defiled, all y'all going to be defiled. So he takes his whole group with him from, from the, the house of Simon the Tanner's roof in Caesarea and goes to the house of Cornelius. When he gets there, God has been working on him. He's given him visions and a dream, essentially, and a vision. Helping him to understand that, that God's view of kosher is a bit different from the Jewish view of kosher. And he does it by showing him this Cajun pizza. <laughs> we were just in Louisiana a few weeks ago, and we ate some great tasting stuff. I was just afraid to ask what it was. It's true. And I'm pretty sure it wouldn't have been on Peter's dietary rules, you know. And God said, whatever I have, notice what he says, whatever I have called clean, you should not call unclean. He's prepping him to go into the house of, of Cornelius the centurion. He was, Cornelius was of the Italian regiment. He was, in, he was from Rome, carried a lot of prestige. He was a centurion in the Roman army, but he was a God-fearer. Somewhere in the process of coming to Israel, no doubt, he'd experienced the power of the anointing. Something different. They had lots of gods, lots of rituals, lots of things, but there was something he experienced that was different, that made him believe in the one God of Israel. And then the angels have appeared. And I, I love it. I don't have time to preach that whole passage to you, but it's interesting to me. I, I'll, I'll revisit giving for a second. Isn't it interesting to me that when the angel comes to Cornelius, he says, you're giving has come up before the Lord. Your alms have arisen before God. Always remember that when you're giving in faith, it's anointed. And that anointing is that communication process that connects heaven and earth directly. When Jesus said, pray that the, that that's being done in heaven, the will of God in heaven, would be done on earth. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How does that happen? By the power of the anointing. The anointing that is transcendent of time and space and dimension. And that, that anointing that is, is, is that linkage, that connection between heaven and earth where God's will can flow through the medium of the anointing. And it flows through everything that is anointed. When Peter gets to the house of Cornelius, he preaches the gospel and then it dawns on him. He says in his passage of message, he says, I'm telling you how God anointed Jesus who went about, a Jesus of Nazareth, who went about doing good and healing all manner of diseases. So now we have the testimony of an apostle. We have the witness of Jesus himself and the expectant testimony of a prophet to help us understand why the anointing works. It works because it's powerful. It works because it connects heaven and earth. It works because the power of the Lord flows through the anointed vessel. Whether it's a person or a, or a place or a thing, if it's anointed, if it's truth based in the revelation of God, then it is anointed and that anointing. Are y'all in the room with me? Listen, I, I, you need your pastor. I know you do. But if you're in trouble in the middle of the night, you can open that word right there. And when you read about what his word says, it works because it is anointed. 
If you are a child of God and your name has been written in the Lamb's book of life, you are now part of the anointed one. You are anointed. You can lay hands on your own head. You ever done that? Been in trouble and just put your hand on your own head and say, in the name of Jesus, I command the devil to get... It'll work. It'll work. You know why it works? It's not because you're good, because you're not good. I'm not good. It works because it's the anointing. It works because he's good. He earned the sole right to be the exclusive channel through which the anointing flows. And even took it as his last name. Says, I am Jesus, the anointed one. Woo, praise God. I'm about to get happy, cold and all. And I'm not making fun or light because I know sometimes we do have issues. Some of them are rooted in spiritual matters and some of those are behavioral things. So I don't trivialize with people's experiences or their emotions. But I'm here to tell you that no matter what it is or what its source was in your life, the anointing of the Holy Spirit is powerful enough to break it and to deal with it in your life. You don't have to say, I've got an issue. I'll struggle with it all my life. That's my problem with the 12 steps. I know there's a lot of people help with the 12 steps, and that's, please don't misunderstand. I'm not preaching against it, but I'm just saying, first of all, I like the Christian ones because I don't, that higher power business, you need to put an address on that prayer. Amen. It's not just a higher power. It is the anointed one that will break the yoke in your life. But I don't like the idea that, well, I'm an alcoholic. I'll always be an alcoholic. No, no, that's not what I find in Scripture. That, that may be what the world would teach us. But the truth is the Word of God says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. The old stuff that's passed away is not the stuff you used to do. It's who you used to be. It's who you used to be. You're not that alcoholic anymore. No, no, the anointing has broken that off your life. You're a son and a daughter of God. Amen. Okay, so <clears throat> that's essentially my introduction No, that's, that's my message. I, I want to give you three very quick soon trebo moves. I want to give you three very quick soon trebo moves that work because they are anointed. And when you don't know what to do, you can use them and they will work for you every time. Somebody say it with me every time. Every time. Well, the first is worship. I thought Pastor was going to preach my message there for a few moments. He was quoting Psalms 33. Uh, the psalmist says in Psalms 33 that the praise of the upright is beautiful. Oh, I found that to be true. That the praise of the upright is beautiful, but it's also powerful. Amen. Worship. Worship is a soon trebo move that will crush the work of the enemy in your life. If you don't think I'm telling you the truth, then just let the enemy attack you. And when you feel like panicking, instead, 
cue up your playlist of your favorite worship and start singing along. And you know what? It's not long until the atmosphere. Why does worship work? Because it changes the atmosphere. What happens is worship kind of forces you to quit looking at your situation and essentially giving yourself all the attention. And it shifts that attention back to Christ. And as you shift your attention back to Christ, the anointing that's in the Christ begins to work in the situation that you're in and the atmosphere begins to change. It will shift it from circumstantial and victimization to victorious and joyous regarding of your circumstances. Worship will change your attention from what you've done and what's been done to you to what he's done and what he has accomplished for you. It'll shift your attention from what you've endured to what he endured. Worship is powerful because it's anointed. It's a Sunkrebo, martial arts. Forgive me for using that analogy, but a martial arts move in the spirit. And you don't have to be prayed up. You don't have to be fat, freshly fasted from 40 days of fasting or even three. Or even a big, you could, honestly, even if you didn't skip the Big Mac that you had told the Lord you'd skip. It's all right. Just start worshiping him. Just start worshiping him because when you worship him, it invites him into your situation. It changes the atmosphere. But the problem with so many of us is we spend so much time worshiping ourselves. We worship ourselves. We do a lot of it in church. Uh, We worship ourselves at the altar of our personal preferences. Bless God, I don't like that style of worship. I remember a story told about, and I'm going to wrap up, but I remember a story told about a, a little old lady that was, it was, now we've been through a lot of transition. How many have been through a lot of change in your life? In a block through, how many wish God would get it right and leave it alone? Yeah. I've been through a lot of change in my life, and I have to be honest, I'd be quite content if it never changed again. But it seems like in life, things just keep changing. So this church was transitioning in a worship style. So, you know, I mean, I was raised, like some of you probably, with the hymnals, right? Turn to number 334, first and last stanzas. Amen. You know. Jesus is coming soon, morning or night or noon. Many will meet their doom. Okay. And we, and we celebrated it like we were glad they were going to hell. You know, it's like, I don't know what, I'm not sure what we were thinking. A lot of people, hey, I've been in service where a lot of people get saved with that stuff, man. <laughs> Honestly. You know why? Because it's anointed. It's what we knew to do, and it's what we did. And God loved us, and he intervened. And... But this little lady was struggling with that, man, because she was used to the hymnals, and church had started singing off the wall. And so she was leaving the service one morning and Shook the pastor's hand, young pastor standing there trying to bring change to the church and kind of bring life to it. And she shook his hand and said, Pastor, I just want you to know we didn't get no- I didn't get nothing out of that worship. He stood there a minute and said, Well, that's good. We weren't worshiping you. Okay. Now, there's something even among Christians that we like to worship ourselves. And if we're not careful, we'll put ourselves on the throne that only God should be on. And then there's a shut off of the anointing. And what happens when the anointing is broken, the enemy will try to come into your life and reattach the chains and shackles in your life. Worship is powerful. 
When we worship, we invite heaven to evade our situation. Pastor also mentioned Second Chronicles chapter 20. When Judah was surrounded and about to be overrun by the Moabites and the Ammonites, King Jehoshaphat sent the praisers and musicians out in front of the army. And when they began to worship, the scripture says God ambushed the enemy. I believe there's a reason for that. I think, First of all, I think a lot of the way God gets stuff done is through angels. So I'll just, y'all don't know me very well, so I'm just going to pull the cover right off and tell you right up front. I'm one of those spiritual guys that I believe in angels. They're all over the Bible. Unless God just suddenly changed his mind when the enlightenment. <laughs> angels are part of the way that God gets stuff done. With Jacob, remember his dream? He had a dream of how covenant works. That's what that dream was about. How does covenant work? And he saw God standing over the ladder, Jacob's ladder, and the angels ascending and descending on the ladder. I think it was Spurgeon that said that was the morning and the evening shift. What were they doing? They were fulfilling the terms of God's agreement in the realm of the unseen. Paul encountered angels. Jesus was ministered to by angels. They're, they're all over. So I believe what happens is when we worship God, angels are waiting for the will of God. I know Hebrews says that are they not ministering spirits sent forth to minister on behalf of the heirs of salvation. I get that and I believe that. But they will never do something outside the will of God. They are tuned, if you will, fine-tuned to the will of God. Well, because worship is one of the reasons you were created. It's the will of God in your life in every circumstance, in every situation. When we worship, angels get busy because they have been duly authorized to work on your behalf according to the will of God. They're waiting for you to agree with that and for you to agree with God's will. And when you agree with the will of God, angels get busy. Worship is not just worship, it's war. And what happens... <clears throat> in the realm of the spirit when we worship God it begins to populate the atmosphere with heaven's firepower anybody ever come into a worship service and just man we hit that groove and it's like the worship is rich what are you feeling you're feeling the anointing and we used to have an old course we used to sing about the flutter of angels wings we weren't too far off Worship launches the attack. Worship is war. And then the, the, the last thing about worship is God inhabits it. You mentioned that too. <laughs> the word enthroned is some... But th- listen, this is interesting. The word enthroned is sometimes translated inhabits, but in other places it's presided in a ruling. Like a judge would take his place on the bench and bring the gavel down. When that judge is on the bench, it's that same Hebrew word for inhabit. It's like the judge is inhabiting his bench and preparing to bring his decree of justice. Anybody in this room felt like you needed God to right some wrongs in your life? That you needed God to get involved in some circumstance and sort out some some messed up situations? You literally need an order. If I could just have a court order. Well, can I tell you when you worship God, the judge of the universe arises to his bench and gives you an order of his will in your life. Okay, well, stand with me. I know I promised you three. But how many believe if you'll practice that one, 
you'll soon trebo the devil in a lot of ways in your life. The enemy tries to attack and get your children. The enemy tries to attack your finance. The enemy tries to attack in your thoughts and convince you that God doesn't love you, that nobody loves you. The devil is a liar. And if you want to expose his lie, begin to worship the creator of the universe. Begin to worship the anointed one. And as you worship the anointed one, the anointed one, you partake of his anointing. That same psalmist in Psalms 33, to give you the second one, let me just do it that way. I'll just, I won't comment, I'll just give it to you. The second one is to make sure you're a person of the word because the word is anointed. The psalmist said it this way in verse 4, 33, 4. The word of the Lord is always right. In this culture, when today we people say, well, I know what God's word says. I've heard that. I know what science says. I've heard that. But it seems to me, we are in the it seems to me generation where people have elevated their opinions to the level of both science and God. In that environment, ladies and gentlemen, I challenge you to decide you're not even going to worry so much about science. I think you should be educated. I think you should know all that there is. But you understand science began with a bunch of God believers and worshipers who were trying to explain the empirical universe. Let's not forget that. Atheism will tell you it didn't happen that way. But just go back and study Kepler and study Newton and study some of the early foundational people. They were trying to demonstrate the glory of God in science. So what if we just decided that we're going to make the word of God our foundation and our position? What if we decided if God's word says it, I'm going to believe it. And I'm going to embrace it. I'll tell you what will happen. It will start crushing the work of the enemy in your life. The third thing is simply faith. Well, that's a deep theological sermon, isn't it? Preacher came to tell us to worship God, be people of the word, and exercise your faith. Your faith that's exercised in his person is anointed. Exercise your faith. Practice your faith. Exercise your faith. Decide that you're going to listen less to the news of the day and more the truth of the ages. You can watch too much news, folks. That's me and I got a Fox News app. But I'm going to tell you what, if you listen to too much of that stuff, the Assyrian will put the yoke back on your neck. You have to be careful. I think we should be informed and we should be involved. I'm not suggesting that. But I'm saying too much died of that and not enough of God's word and practicing your faith and the Assyrian will be putting you back into bondage. Amen. 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 Well, let's, let's pray together. Let's share prayer together. Um, if you're here today and you'd say, My Brother Brassfield, the truth is, I've been distracted at times and not worshiped God like I should. And I just want to own it today. And I've heard what you've said. And I have believed what you've said. I believe that worship is anointed. And that there are things in my life I'm battling with that I might not have to battle with if I would just make myself a worshiper. And maybe there's times that I've worshipped myself too much. 
where I should have been worshiping him. Or maybe you're here and you'd say, I've not delved into the word and I've gotten busy and preoccupied and in this digital age I've been distracted with technology and, and I've, been, I've been taken away from the truth of God's word. But I heard what you said today. Some of you, may, it may be a faith situation where you've gotten into fear, which fear is just faith in the devil. It works just like faith does. It's just faith in the devil. You can easily pivot and say, I'm going to be afraid. I'm going to trust God. Same emotions, same thing. All of that stuff works the same way. It's based on your agreement. I'm going to trust God. And maybe there's some things in your life that you need to take to the altar and leave them there and say, I'm going to trust God with this. With heads bowed and eyes closed. If that fits any of those bills, would you just slip your hand up? Amen. 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 You know, the scripture teaches us that with a heart, man believes. And with a mouth, confession is made unto salvation. I know that's when we get saved, but I also believe everything else in the kingdom works that way. I believe it's first a decision you make in your heart. And then when you confess it with your mouth, it releases the anointing in your life. So if you would, those of you who raised your hands, and maybe all of you would join me, I'd like us to pray a prayer today that will allow the word of God that we've heard today to reach a powerful, maximized, optimized level in our life. And that that power will begin to break the yoke of the enemy in our life. Would you pray this prayer with me right now? Lord Jesus, today I've heard your word. I believe in my heart. I commit to turn my heart toward worship. To pull myself off the throne of my life. And to invite you to sit on the throne of my heart. Lord, today I commit to be a person of the word. My motto will be God first. What does your word say? And I believe you'll give me the strength to obey. And Lord, I bring circumstance and situations before you today. That I've been struggling with the faith to believe. And I lay them at the altar. At your feet. And I will exercise my faith. In the gym of my heart. And I believe. That I will see you. Work miracles. In my life. And I receive it today. In Jesus' mighty name. Jesus who is the anointed one. And I receive of your anointing. And my life will never be the same. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you receive the word of the Lord today, would you give the Lord a hand clap of praise? God bless you. You've been a great group. Thank you for joining us. Special thanks to those who give generously to this ministry. Because of you, this ministry is possible. 
If this encourages you, we ask that you subscribe to receive these podcasts or share them on your social stories and tag us at GPC Arkansas. I pray you have a good week.